0: Hello and welcome to Dr. Jones's Veterinary Secrets podcast. This is episode 117. In today's episode, telltale signs of joint pain in dogs with my top holistic options. A disturbing cat poisoning happening in my province, BC. What you need to know about vaccines for your dog or cat. Dr. Jones's Veterinary Secrets is on all your favorite podcast apps, including Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. And I'd love it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review questions or suggestions, feel free to post a comment about this podcast episode on the blog at www.theinternetpetfat.com. I encourage you to get a copy of my new free book, Natural Health for Dogs and Cats. You can get it by going here, www.veteransecrets.com. Now let's get right into today's podcast. Telltale signs of joint pain in dogs. No question, it is one of the most common issues that dog parents talk to me about. They ask me specific questions around like, what are the holistic options? Should I take this anti-inflammatory or not? What should I be looking for? Like what are the top signs? Here are some of the common ones and some of the more common ones you wouldn't thought about. First of all, reluctance to move. You know, obviously as our dogs develop joint problems, they may show a noticeable decrease in their activity. They're less likely to climb up and down stairs, leap into the couch or jump into the car. Limping. For many dog parents, this is the first thing they see. Their dog is limping, you know, one leg or the other, and it doesn't go away. Yes, you can sprain a joint. I'm like, okay, you've sprained your ankle. You'll limp for a bit, but it's going to get better. But it's not getting better. It's like a big red flag goes off. But there are other areas of the body that can become arthritic. Consider spinal issues. Joint inflammation, it can affect your dog's spine and cause a sore neck, hunchback or just this increasing weakness in their rear legs. Spinal problems can even result in an unnatural stance when your dog is walking. Then there are some of the things that are less obvious. Sleepiness. Dogs with joint pain tend to spend much of the day resting or sleeping. Walks can grow shorter, and this can just escalate into just being really lethargic. They're just really quiet and sedate, resulting in weight gain, which then in turn increases pressure on the joints, resulting in more arthritic pain. Irritability and aggression. Yeah, you can have behavioral changes. Joint pain can have a substantial effect on your dog's overall mood. In some cases, these dogs will even try to bite when their affected joints are touched. Uh, This is something that many pet parents first note. Whereas, you know, my dog, is always fine. I could palpate him anywhere, but I touched this one area and all of a sudden he reacted really in pain because he's arthritic. Loss of appetite and depression. Behavioral changes seem to abound in pets with joint pain. Inactivity, it can even result in a loss of appetite and even depression. You may notice that your dog's typical playful self seems overcome with just general sadness. Licking, chewing, or biting. If your dog is constantly licking his or her paws or biting his leg, this is not necessarily a sign that he's got fleas. It could be a sign of possible discomfort in those joints. Dogs will draw attention to the affected areas in response to the pain that's bothering them. So that's why you might see them constantly licking one joint or the other. Some other things that should be big red flags for you guys, just hesitating on the stairs. You know, hesitating to go up, hesitating to go down. Stairs are one of the first things where I would have clients say like, ah, I've just noticed something not right here. Potentially arthritic. Just lagging behind on walks. So many of these guys, they'll still walk, but everything, it's much slower. That should be another big red flag for you. Potentially he's arthritic. Some of these arthritic dogs, they prefer to lie down rather than to sit or to stand. Or if you've got a dog who's pretty happy to stand most of the time, wag his tail, all of a sudden he's lying down a lot, think arthritis. Then lastly, probably the first thing I noticed with many of my uh, older dogs, with Lewis, for instance, he'd be lying down and as soon as he got up, everything, he's stiff, like he's kind of limping on one side, he's not moving his joints the way he once was and I can relate it to myself, I'm lying in bed for the night, I get up, my back is not the way it was. If that's the experience with your dog, then you should be suspecting arthritis. What are some of the contributing factors of arthritis in dogs? Well, obviously as as we get older, our dogs get older, the smooth covering around the joints, the cartilage, it will begin to degenerate. For most dogs, the definition of arthritis is a loss of the smooth articular cartilage, you have bone rubbing on bone, joint wear and tear, and it leads to new bone, that is arthritis. Certain breeds are more prone to arthritis than others. Think of lab retrievers, golden retrievers, German Shepherds, Rotties. The larger the dog in general has increased incidence of arthritis. Excess weight, as in people, more weight means more pressure on the joints, more loss of cartilage, uh, more secondary joint disease there can be hereditary defects. So perhaps the elbow isn't formed normally. Maybe your dog stands very square from the rear, putting much more force on his knee, and in particular, his ACL, his anterior cruciate ligament, it's more likely to tear than leading to secondary arthritis. Obviously, there can be an accident, a trauma, it can affect the joint stability, leading to arthritis. And in some cases, you can even have joint infections, for instance, that can result in a loss of cartilage. When that happens, you have bone rubbing on bone, osteoarthritis. So what's the big thing in terms of how do you help treat your dog who's got... So what's the big thing in terms of ultimately treating your dog who's got joint pain, he has got secondary arthritis? I always suggest first starting with a good quality anti-arthritic supplement. One that includes glucosamine, chondroitin, MSM. Glucosamine at levels of 500 milligrams per 50 pounds of body weight daily, MSM at the same amount. Chondroitin at 250 milligrams per 50 pounds of body weight daily. Something such as my supplement, Ultimate Canine a good quality essential fatty acid supplement. We're looking at essential fatty acid doses. If we're looking at, say, fish oil, we're looking at 1,000 milligrams per 10 to 20 pounds of body weight daily. If we're looking at krill oil, we're looking at about half that amount, about 500 milligrams per 20 pounds of body weight daily. You can also use flax oil as well. The difference with flax is a lot of it then has to be converted into the active anti-inflammatory ingredient of EPA and DHA. But flax can still be helpful, and I've had lots of dog parents, that have got dogs with arthritis, they're finding that flax is beneficial. We're looking at flax doses of one tablespoon per 50 pounds of body weight twice daily. Add in 95% curcumin. This is the active ingredient that is anti-inflammatory, that is found in the spiced turmeric. The big thing with 95% curcumin is you're giving it at the dose of 100 milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight daily. You're giving it with fat and you need to take about a month before you can assess whether it's being effective or not. Consider acupuncture if that's an option for you. I've many dog parents said it was so beneficial for other arthritic dog. At the very least, learn some of the acupressure points that I've discussed prior on some of these podcasts. I also show specific videos on my YouTube channel at Veterinary Secrets showing you exactly which acupressure points to hit. The easiest one to find is called the aspirin joint. So if you grab your dog's back leg, there's a flap of skin above his hawk, between his hawk and his Achilles tendon. You can put your thumb on the outside of that flap of skin your index finger on the inside of that flap of skin, put moderate pressure on the skin, hold that for 30 to 60 seconds. Do that twice a day for a week and assess whether it's being beneficial for your dog or not. Lastly, I encourage you to consider CBD cannabidiol. And if you can also include it along with THC, a four to one tincture may be more effective. Then dose it based on the CBD concentration of three milligrams per 10 pounds of body weight daily. I've had many dog parents said this has been really the big difference in how they've been able to come off Things you know, such as the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or even gabapentin. So if you've got a middle-aged older dog, he's got some of those clinical signs, think arthritis, get him to have a good proper physical exam and you don't need to wait. You can start early on with some of these supplements. They're generally very safe and really can be beneficial and at the very least, delaying the loss of the articular cartilage and just making your dog much more comfortable without secondary conventional medication side effects. Um, This was a rather disturbing story and in part, it was trying to reinforce with myself just why the importance of keeping my cat indoors. Taco, a beloved Penticton cat here in British Columbia had to be euthanized after ingesting a poison. And the local SPCA put out a warning. The family of Taco, a beloved family cat are devastated after a cat had to be euthanized after ingesting poison. At least four cats ingested poison last week prompting a warning from the local SPCA. So they're urging anybody that lives in the downtown area to keep their cats inside after four cats were confirmed to have ingested poison last week. This family said they came home that night and they instantly knew something was very wrong with their cat. He wasn't able to move his legs and he was extremely lethargic. They rushed him to the emergency veterinary hospital in the local community called Kelowna. They said their neighbor's cat was also poisoned the same day. He was also at the emergency clinic and he was showing signs of antifreeze poisoning. They said their cat was this fun-loving cat. He just loved to be outside and the family, they're just heartbroken. You know, and unfortunately they had to euthanize their cat. Antifreeze causes serious kidney failure. And unless you catch it in a very quick period of time, it's permanent. Unfortunately, there's nothing even as a veterinarian that you can do about it. Um, the SPCA released a warning saying like just be really cautious and there's other dangers out there. Yes, there's there can be people that can be poison cats. Hopefully it doesn't happen very often, but you have predators, you have cars, traffic. And if you can, keep your cat inside. Good point. And when I think of all the trauma I saw in cats from abscesses to poisons to being hit by cars, in general, it's much safer to keep your cat inside. Sorry that these guys had to go through that experience. The last part of the podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit about vaccines, the big vaccine question. Well, in the world of our dogs and cats, it's very different. The first dog and cat vaccines, they were developed and used to prevent serious infectious disease. Diseases such as rabies, canine parvovirus, feline distemper, also known as panleukopenia makes sense like they really had a clear purpose but they also turned out to be a great way from drug companies to make a lot of money and for veterinarians they started to use vaccines as a practice growth tool clients were coming back to the clinic to get the shots for their dog the shots for their cat so these drug companies they develop vaccines for just about everything FIP, feline infectious peritonitis, FIV, feline immunodeficiency virus coronavirus, feline leukemia, Giardia, Lyme disease, adenovirus, Bordetella, leptospirosis, parainfluenza, vaccine for ringworm, chlamydia, and my personal favorite, the rattlesnake vaccine. It got to the point where clients were being told to vaccinate their dogs or cats every year with multiple vaccines. Unfortunately, what this done is cause harm to some pets, And it's really not done a great job of creating confidence in the people, the organizations, suggesting multiple vaccines yearly. In the last 10 years, many veterinarians, most veterinary colleges now recognize that we've given way too many vaccines far too often. And they're now advising a very modified vaccine protocol. And this specific modified protocol is much the same of what I would be giving to my next puppy or kitten. For puppies, I would be giving my puppy a distemper parvovirus vaccine at eight weeks, a booster at 12 weeks. If he were to get a rabies vaccine, it would be given at six months. A year later, I would be doing a titer test to see what the titer levels are. If he had protective level of antibodies, then I wouldn't be giving him any further vaccines. If I were to get a little kitten, I would be doing the FVRCP booster at eight weeks and at twelve weeks. So that's feline viral rhinotracheitis, feline calicivirus, and feline panleukopenia. The rabies vaccine, I would be giving it at six months. Doing a titered test again in a year, may not be giving any further vaccines. If I had a strictly indoor cat, I would not be giving him any vaccines. Then lastly, I wanted to give you some of the specific concerns and side effects about the vaccines. And some of this comes from a very, a very respected veterinarian, Dr. Gene Dodds. What are some of the things that are in your dog and cat vaccines? Adjuvants. Well, an adjuvant is an agent that modifies the effect of other agents. Adjuvants may be added to a vaccine to boost the immune response, to produce more antibodies, and ultimately produce longer-lasting immunity, thus minimizing the amount of antigen or vaccine needed. These include aluminum hydroxide and paraffin oil additives. Additives are found in vaccines include preservatives like thimerosal, which is mercury based, along with stabilizers to prolong the shelf life. The vaccines also contain small amounts of cultural materials used to make the vaccine in the first place. It, they could include fetal calf serum, human serum albumin, along with other less desirable agents such as formaldehyde, and even antibiotics. What are some of the side effects? Well, according to Dr. Gene Dawes, while adjuvants boost the immune response, they also increase the risk of autoimmune immune disease and anti-inflammatory disease. Younger dogs and cats are at increased risk because they are given more vaccines. More vaccines means more adjuvants, more additives, and potentially more side effects. Dr. Dodd says that adjuvants can affect how genes are expressed, affecting the nervous system. Adjuvants are now known to affect the nervous system immune axis, which plays a key role in brain development and immune function. There's one specific syndrome you should be aware of called the AISIA syndrome. It's an auto inflammatory syndrome induced by adjuvants and was first recorded as a, as a clinical disease in 2011. According to Dr. Dawes, it includes four conditions sharing signs and symptoms, which can be secondary to vaccines. The triggering effects of the adjuvants, in combination with other factors such as environment, genetic predisposition, etc., can result in the development of autoimmune disease. And what's happening here is your pet's immune system is literally attacking itself. Some of the adjuvants that have been implicated in this include heavy metals, mercury, aluminum, These are commonly found in the rabies vaccines. Some of the clinical signs, well, it can happen anywhere from three to 45 days post-vaccine. Signs include skin disease, allergies, seizures, aggression, liver disease, polyarthritis, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, phobias, some of the more serious autoimmune skin diseases, you know, such as lupus. So ultimately, what is the solution? Well, number one, just vaccinate your dog, your cat or what? they need. We're giving less vaccines less often. We're only giving what is necessary based on your area. Ask your veterinarian about non-adjuvanted vaccines. They don't need to be adjuvanted. There's some new vaccines. They're non-adjuvanted. They're very effective. They'd be given in small doses. Definitely what I'd be giving to my next dog or kitten, puppy or kitten, if I'm going to do vaccines these minimal vaccine doses, eight weeks and 12 weeks, they'll be non-adjuvanted. I'll be tighter testing a year later. That's probably all I would be giving them. I still am giving vaccines. We're giving them to prevent serious infectious disease. It's still out there, but you're just giving what is needed and you're ultimately balancing, you know, risk versus reward. So I hope that gives you a bit of clarity. I don't want to completely scare you off from vaccines. Clearly they have a purpose. But they've been so beneficial to prevent infectious disease in our dogs, in our cats. And we need to put it all in contacts, And we've given way too many vaccines far too long. We've kind of gone the other extreme end. Let's prevent serious infectious disease when that occur when we need to. Okay, we'll vaccinate them prior to a year of age. Beyond that, I think it's overkill for the most part. Well, you guys, thanks for listening to this edition of the Veterinary Secrets podcast. I'm hoping that's given you a little bit of clarity. You have an idea around one, you know, what you should be vaccinating your dog or cat for. Two, maybe if you're a cat parent, why you want to keep your cat inside. And number three, if you're wondering, is your dog arthritic or not? Well, maybe some of the things we just talked about will give you a clue as to if he is or if he isn't. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you guys again next week. This is Dr. Jones.